following message is from New Life Gillette series, Follow Me. This week, Pastor Mike presents part five of this series. Well, good morning. It is good to see you. It's good to be, uh, well, I would say it's good to, for it to be 4th of July weekend, except for 4th of July always brings heat, and I don't like that. Other than that, it's a good weekend. Hey, today is the very first day we are streaming live on church307.com. So for those of you who don't know, we have launched a new outreach tool using online church. There's a lot of people who live remotely or live out in the middle of nowhere or have some kind of illness that doesn't allow them to come to church or whatever reason they, or maybe they're just not brave enough to walk through the doors of a church who will attend online church. And so our goal is to try to reach people that we can't reach with our building through church307.com. Go to it right now church307.com on your phone. You can bookmark it, maybe share it on social media and let people know, hey, um, this is available if you're looking for online church, church church307.com launches today and we are excited about it. Hey, we're in a series called Follow Me. Our our world loves leadership, uh, which is helpful. Leadership is a good thing. But when Christ came to, to the world, he introduced a new kind of leadership, servant leadership. He said, learning to follow is more important than learning to lead because you need to be a good follower before you can be a good leader. And so in this series, we're talking about what is it that makes people a good follower. Today, I'd like to talk about something in followership that I think is our world is worst at when it comes to following, and that is trust. We have a horrible time trying to trust people in our world today. Our culture has a crippling amount of skepticism and judgmentalism that just makes following near impossible. So we are terrible followers because we don't trust anybody enough to follow them. So today, I want to get really practical, if I can, and I want to talk about four people that I believe you should choose to trust. Maybe it's not natural, maybe it's not easy, but four people that you should choose to trust. They are these four people. Your boss, your spouse, whether you're married now or you're going to be married in the future someday, or your church, and you should trust your God. How many people here have an above average boss? Okay, let's do the math. Half of us should have an above average boss, but there are like four of us in the room who think we have an above average. Do I have any employees that work for me in the room? Did you raise your hand? No, they all ran out of the room as soon as I asked the question. Uh, Why is it that less than half of us say we have above average bosses? Now, mathematically, half of the people have above average bosses. Why is it that less than half of us say we have above average bosses? Because our expectations are so high. We, we think, hey, they're the boss. They better be better than me, and I'm pretty good, so you got to be really good to be above me, right? Why do so few of us have such high standards when it comes to our bosses? Well, the problem is those high standards reflect in the way we teach our, treat our bosses. Let me let you in on a little secret. Better followers have better bosses. 
If you were a better follower, you would have a better boss. If you want to get on your boss's good side, then be a good follower. The one who gets the special treatment and gets the better hours or gets the raises, they're not the ones gossiping about their bosses. They're not the ones bad-mouthing about their bosses. Because you may think bad-mouthing your boss, they're not finding out about it, you're wrong. People, okay, so people complain about things that I do a lot, and they think they're complaining to their friends and word will never get to me. Do you know how fat, people love to tell on people. You're not, your, your secrets are not secret. The things that you're saying bad about other people, they're not staying between you and the person you told. It's spreading. Far and wide it's, wide it's spreading. If you talk about, it, your, about your boss, your boss knows it. And even if nobody told them, they can just tell. There's just an emotional, we can just read people and we can tell there is, you do not respect me. So here's my advice to you if you want to have a good boss. Be a good follower. Now, that's a general proverb. It's not always true. But in general, if you want a better boss, be a better follower. Peter says this. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Love each other in the church. Well, that's easy. Well, it's easy for most of you. Some of you, it's not so easy. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Okay, we were doing fine. Now you got to bring Nero into it. If you think you have a bad boss, try honoring Nero. Like he might just kill you. But Peter says you should honor him. Why? It'll be better for you. He's in charge. He calls the shots. If you honor him, you'll have a better life. If you dishonor him, you're going to have a worse life. Honor Nero. Then he continues. Slaves. Oh, man. Now it's getting worse. This is, don't you know this is Freedom Weekend, Mike? Don't talk about slaves. He says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So he's not condoning slavery. He's just saying, hey, if you are a slave, it would be better for you if you'd honor your master. It would, be, it would improve your life if your master likes you. So, Mr. Bossman, I don't understand why you insist on screwing th everything up all the time, but I trust you. I honor you. I will follow you, and I will even respect you even when I don't want to. It'll be better for everybody. And this is what Christians should be like. Giving what is not deserved. Loving when love is not earned. We give trust. Mr. Bossman, I trust you. I trust, even though you don't have, even though you don't deserve it, I trust that you're doing at least what you think is best. I trust that you didn't mean to screw up. I trust that you don't realize what you're doing is making my life worse. So I trust. I think we can use this same principle in marriages. The same thing is true about marriage. What do they say? Happy spouse, happy house. Happy wife, happy... Happy husband, happy... I don't know. I don't think anything rhymes with husband. What, can you do one for guys? Happy man, happy... 
clan. There you go. I like it. Have you ever tried to live with somebody who doesn't trust you? That's a miserable existence. It's not fun. So, honey, I am not sure why you insist on leaving the seat up after you go to the restroom every single time, but I'm going to trust that it's not because you don't care about me. I don't know why you refuse to put the dishes in the dishwasher, but I'm going to trust it's not because you're disrespecting me. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. If I say to my wife, hey, Darcy, I love escape rooms more than you. What does she think? (laughs) Oh, she wouldn't do that. No, she thinks if she doesn't trust me, she thinks, you love escape rooms more than you love me? What? What? How? It's a broom. I'm your wife. Now, if she does trust me, she hears me say, I love escape rooms more than you love escape rooms. So we can take the same sentence in two different ways. And if we've led with trust, we think, how do you probably mean this? You're probably not trying to say you love escape rooms more than you love me. What are you trying to say? I'm going to choose to trust. I'm going to give some grace and expect that you're saying something kind. Because what is the conversation missing in so many of our relationship conversations? It's missing trust that you're doing what you think is best. We're tempted to read between the lines and assume the worst. If you came home late from work, I assume that it's because you don't care about me. Or I could assume you need to help a little little old lady across the street or something. Or you stopped to help somebody or you couldn't help it. Assume your partner has good intentions. Now, I have to stop and clarify whenever I say anything like this. I am not saying that if someone is abusing you, you should keep being abused. That's not what I'm saying. That is not loving that person. You do not love someone by allowing them to abuse you. That is enabling them and is worse for them. If you're being abused, get out. But... If on average, if in general, their intentions are good and they want to do what's best, then choose to trust that when you don't fully understand, or even when you think you fully understand, you choose trust. Because remember, Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He was saying this to the disciples who kept failing to follow him. They wanted to follow. They wanted to do what was right. They wanted to understand what he was teaching. They just, they were just weak. This is us in relationships. I want to be a good husband, but sometimes I'm just lazy or sometimes I get angry or sometimes I'm forgetful. I want to do what's right. Sometimes I screw up. So we give patience because we want patience. We give grace because we want grace. But what do we do instead? Usually, naturally, we judge others by their worst decisions And we judge ourselves by our best intentions. Oh, that's the guy that did that one thing that one time. Oh, oh, she's the one that said such and such to so-and-so. And this is how we judge people. We know a little bit about them, and we use that little bit to extrapolate an entire opinion about them. We judge them based on something that they did in the past, but that's not what we do with ourselves, right? We know ourselves. Scripture tells us that we love ourselves. And if we love ourselves... 
We judge ourselves based on our intentions. I know I did that, but that's, I didn't mean to. I know I, I know I keep making this mistake, but I don't, I'm trying. We judge ourselves based on our intentions. We, we get upset at people that you didn't do it the way I wanted you to do it or on my timeline or with my standards. We judge ourselves with intentions. The reality is in our world, we have a judgment culture. We all think that it is our job to sit around and review things. But this isn't our fault, right? I mean, I've gotten, I think, three phone calls from those pollsters who want to know what I think on every political topic. Like, who are you going to vote for? What do you think about this issue? And everybody wants to know my opinion. So I start to think, okay, I must be pretty important. You want to know about what I think? Let me tell you what I think. Or what about Amazon or Yelp or Flickster? My food came cold. Two stars. The CGI in that movie was junk. Three stars. That $10 golf club I bought on Amazon broke one star. We just judge. It's our job. That's our role in society. We judge each other. We're, we're constantly deciding which, which idol should I vote for, which star or whatever reality show we're supposed to vote for people. We judge. We criticize. Oh, she's not a perfect singer. She's better. He's good. He's better. But it's not just judgment. It's quick judgment. We look at a little bit of information about people, and, the, and then we assume we know everything about them because of that little bit of information. I know what party you vote for. <laughs> I, know, I better know everything else about you, too. I, I know what you did that one time. I know where you graduated from. I know what city you're from. I know what politi p politician voted on this way. I know what he'll vote on next time. Little bit of information, now we know everything. I read the other day that 70% of people share news articles on social media, only read the headlines before sharing. Now, I don't know what the actual article said, but this is the headline of the article about people reading. How much of what we know about the world is just headlines? A lot. Someone reads a headline and says, hey, did you hear? Somebody's like, yeah, I heard. And then they have a whole conversation because they feel educated about some topic because they read a headline. Here's the problem. I've got an MBA. I've done some marketing study. Headlines are intentionally misleading. They do it on purpose because it catches your attention. They make it sound so big and absurd in the headline. Then you read the article and you're like, oh, I thought I was saying something else. Can I give you some examples? Here's one. 70 cases of COVID-19 at French schools day after reopening. Oh my word, kids are getting COVID like crazy. You read the headline and you assume that schools reopening means COVID spreads. Actually, if you read the article, the article goes on to say that every single one of those kids had COVID before the schools reopened. Here's another example. LED streetlights kill off insect population by half. What do you think? Oh no, we got to quit switching from traditional lights or incandescent or whatever they're called. We got to quit switching to LED lights. These LED lights are killing all the bugs, right? That's what you think. But then you read the article 
and you find out that they're actually comparing LED lights to zero lights. They're not comparing LED lights to the traditional lights. Actually, LED lights and traditional lights kill off the same number of insects as if we care about how many insects are getting killed. Or this one. Number of children with sickle cell anemia increasing worldwide. Sounds like bad news, doesn't it? Because bad news, you're more likely to read the article. Then you read the article, you actually find out this is incredible news. Why? Because the reason why kids with, the number of kids with sickle cell anemia is increasing is because they're living longer. Well, if, you, if one kid with sickle cell anemia is living longer, well, naturally, over time, there's going to be more kids with sickle cell anemia because they're living longer. It's a good news article, yet we pose it in negative light so that we can get you to read the article. Headlines are misleading. And on top of that, it gets worse. Some news is just fake. Some news is just wrong. I don't know if you know that nobody died in the Titanic sinking. They all survived, according to this newspaper. Fake news is not new, by the way. Fake news has been around for a while. Or this one, Dewey defeats Truman. I don't know. Most of you are like, who's Dewey? <laughs> exactly. He lost. He did not defeat Truman. So what, what, what ends up happening? We get burned. I read that article. I told a bunch of people. Now I feel like an idiot because that wasn't exactly true. I shared that news article about that thing that happened and then found out it didn't actually happen. Now I found like an idiot. And then we become callous. We become jaded. We start to become skeptical and we stop trusting people. The solution to fake news and the solution to wrong information is not to distrust all information. The solution to wrong information is to seek out right information. The, so the solution to false things is true things. So rather than getting cynical, we should become better at researching, better at reading, and not just sharing based on a, sharing on a whim. Because when we allow this false information to make us cynical and skeptical, we stop trusting the people we should trust. A pastor gets up to preach and you think, what does he know? He read a book. Why would I listen to him? All he wants is my money. So let me say this. The Bible is the ultimate authority. The Bible is truth, not the interpreter, not me. We're all just trying to understand it. Don't ever hear anything I say and just accept it as absolute truth. But as your pastor... Can I ask you to trust me? And not trust that every single thing I say is right, because not everything I say is right. I promise I will get things wrong. But I would like to ask you to trust me to try. Trust me to have good motives. Trust me that I'm not trying to mislead, mislead you, because I do dumb things all the time. I forget names. I say dumb things in sermon. I try things that don't work. So you have an option. When I screw up, you can assume that I'm malicious, that I'm just trying to manipulate people and trying to control you and trying to get something out of you. Or you can assume I'm dumb, which is only true part of the time. You can assume that if I said something 
wrong this one time that everything I say is wrong. Or you can assume that I'm just human and that I'm going to screw up. Assume that I'm going to make mistakes. I pretty regularly hear people say that they won't give money to the church because they don't trust the church to spend their money well. In that, they reveal their heart and that they're not truly giving their money to God. They're giving their money to the church. Well, imagine this. Imagine one day, instead of giving electronically, everybody decides that they're going to give with paper. And everybody brings in their gifts, and we set it up on the stage, and then I light it all on fire. Can you imagine? Wouldn't you be so angry? Mike, why are you so wasteful with the money that I sacrificed to the church? You realize this is what God asked us to do in the Old Covenant? Asked the Jews to do in the Old Covenant? Get this. He says, when you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, animal is their currency, you may take it from your herd of cattle or your flock of sheep and goats. And then he goes on and he says, and here's how you pick which animal you're going to give. It's got to be your prized possession. It's got to be the spotless lamb. It's got to be the healthiest bull. It's got to be the best of the best, the most valuable thing you, off, you own. Bring it to the church. Bring it to the temple. And then what happens? Then they bring this beautiful animal and the priest kills it. And he splashes the blood all over the place as if to say, ha ha. Splashes the blood everywhere. Then he says, then the priest will burn the entire sacrifice on the altar as a burnt offering. This is where we get the idea of offerings. Giving to God. It is a special gift. And here's the whole point. A pleasing aroma to the Lord. Wait, God. You just turned my most valuable possession into a Yankee candle? You wanted me to burn the meat because you like the smell of barbecue? Wait, that was my pet sheep. Pretty regularly I hear complaints about the missions that we support and charities we give to and, and ways we spend our money. But the question of how we spend the money is a misplaced question. When God told people to bring their offerings to the temple, what he was inviting them to do was sacrifice. That's the point. It's sacrifice. And let me tell you, if you don't like the fact that we support Blessings in a Backpack or the Purchase Project or Women's Resource Center, if you don't like the fact that I pay Pastor Paul's salary, I don't always like that either. I, I still, there, you know, I do not like the way we spend our money all the time. There are some things that our board and our staff have decided to put in the budget I would not like in the budget. There are things that I would like to put in the budget that is not in the budget. None of us get our way. Yet I never look at that and say, you know what? I'm not going to give to the church because I'm not getting my way. Because I'm not giving to the church. I'm giving to God and I'm trusting that if he doesn't want us to support blessings anymore, then he can pretty much shut the door on blessings in a bunch of different ways because it takes a miracle for it to keep running all the time. 
He can shut us down. He, he, he can do what he wants. I trust him enough to believe that he's got enough money. He doesn't need my money. And the money that I do give, that he will multiply and do more with it than I could do with it. I'm not giving to the church. I'm giving to God. I'm sacrificing this. So whether you burn it all up or pay Pastor Paul's salary with it, I'm not giving to you. I'm giving to the church. And that requires trust. That requires me to have such a tremendous amount of trust in God that I believe that he can even control me. And he can even control the situation. And he can even control finances. I trust you, God. I'm giving this to you. You know, when the, the Jews brought their offerings to be sacrificed, there wasn't just one kind. What we've been talking about so far is the burnt offering. That's the first kind of offering that they gave, but it's not the only kind. There were a lot of different kinds. So, so this one, burnt offering, just a total sacrifice to God. We're not keeping any part of it. It's just all up in flames. There's more kinds, though. There's also the grain offering. The grain offering, they would actually burn part of it totally to God, but then part of it, it was they were cooking it. The grain offering was bread or grain, and they would actually bring it to the temple, and a portion of it was actually reserved for the priests. This is what their income was. So they would sell this grain, or they would eat this grain, and this is how they would provide for themselves. The grain offering was actually providing for the temple. Then there was the peace offering. The peace offering was actually more of a feast. It was a celebration. This was a barbecue. They would bring the meat to the temple and they would burn it on the altar and then they would eat it. This is communion. This was the early form of communion that they did together. Then there's the sin offering. This is the one we talk about most often in the church. This is what Jesus did on the cross. This is the offering that they would, they would sacrifice an animal because they needed their sins to be forgiven. And so somehow killing this animal and burning it on an altar would allow their sins, at least temporarily, to be forgiven. But the problem is the priests who are supposed to be offering these sacrifices, like me, were flawed. They sinned. They screwed up. They made bad decisions. And so these priests were not qualified yet to provide these offerings to God. So what would the priests have to do? Before they could offer your sacrifice for your sins, they would have to go deeper into the temple to offer a sacrifice for their sins. And the deeper into the temple they would go, or the higher the status of the person that needed sins needed to be forgiven, the deeper into the temple they'd have to go. The higher the status of the person whose sin is to be forgiven, the deeper into the temple they'd have to go. So they'd have to go down into the holy place. And they'd have to provide a sacrifice for themselves so that they could come back to the shallow part and provide a sacrifice for us common folk. I hope you're seeing all the parallels here. And what a beautiful foreshadowing the old covenant, the old system was of our new system. The, the burnt offering, just a pure sacrifice. I'm just going to give it to God, just total surrender. The grain offering, the offering to provide for the church, supply the church's needs. The peace offering was for communion of the saints. The sin offering was for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what Jesus did for us. 
Yet remember, the higher the status of the person, the deeper into the temple you have to go. So how deep did Jesus have to go to sacrifice himself for us? Paul says this, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Remember, the whole point is trust. This is what adopts us into the family. This is what makes us part of his kingdom. Trust or faith. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith, trusting in God. This is the whole point. And he says, for those who have been adopted into the family of God, Christ will make his home in you. How deep does Jesus have to go? He's got to get down to your level. That's how deep. That's pretty low. So Jesus made you the temple. And then he descended to you and offered one sacrifice, one sin sacrifice for all sins. It sounds a little weird, doesn't it? All this killing and blood and burning. What's the point? And again, it leads us to be skeptical. Mike, all that fairy tale stuff, we're enlightened now. We've got science We don't need sacrifice for sins. And what does this require? I don't understand it. I don't fully understand why a sin requires sacrifice. I don't don't understand why blood has to be shed to forgive sins. But I trust. But God said it, so I have to say, okay, I trust you. If you can speak the whole world into existence, I have to trust you. If you can predict your own death and resurrection and pull it off, I've got to trust you. I don't understand, but I choose to trust. Because it's sin that keeps us away from God, but he solved that problem. It, now it's skepticism that keeps us from putting our faith in him. He solved the sin problem, and now it's our skepticism that's allowing us to participate in the solution to be a part of the solution, to be adopted into the family. Now it's skepticism and judgmentalism and this rejection of things that we don't understand that keeps us from relationship with him. It keeps us out of heaven. Because this world is not all there is. This world is a shadow of the good things to come. You are not an accident of the Big Bang. You were planned before the world was created. You were knit together in your mother's womb. You were created on purpose for a purpose. You are not an accident. This world is more than what you can see, more than what you can understand. So you've got to choose to trust the one who made it all, the one who created you. Choose to trust. So my invitation, the big invitation, trust Jesus. Forgive your sins. Christ's death on the cross was the sacrifice that could adopt you into his family. So will you say yes? Will you follow him? Will you put your trust in him? We have a board up here on the wall that we're adding a light for every person who makes a commitment to follow him. We had some people last week make commitments, so we need to add a couple lights up there that we haven't yet yet done. If you have not yet made a commitment to follow Christ, if you've not said, yes, I need to be forgiven, yes, I want that, today's the day. Will you trust him? There's a card in the chair in front of you. And in moments like this, you're like, I'm getting hungry and I want to get out of here. 
that you kind of want to just shake that. But if the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart and you know that you need to be forgiven, that you can't be good enough, that you're going to screw up, if it's time for you to put your trust in Jesus, would you do it today? Grab one of those cards and let us know that you're ready to make that decision. You can bring that card to one of us or drop it in a box in the back of the room. We want to follow up with you and give you some information about some next steps that you can take in following him. There's one more Jewish offering that we want to talk about today. And it was the guilt offering. This is the offering that dealt with not the sins themselves, but the consequences of the sins. You need to be punished for your actions. For example, if you stole something from someone, the priest would estimate the amount of whatever it is that you stole, then he would add 20% of it just to be safe, and then you would have to burn the equivalent of what you stole plus 20% on the altar. That's the guilt offering. It dealt with the consequences of your sins. The sin offering may give you forgiveness, but the consequences are still coming because this is what we know in our lives. Forgiveness doesn't always remove consequences, right? Sin has consequences. You screw up, you got to pay the price. Even though all of the sins, the biggest sin and the smallest sins will keep you out of heaven, some sins have more consequences than other sins. Some, some sins last longer in their consequences. So in this world, you will have to pay some consequences for your sins even after God has forgiven you. But because Christ is also the guilt offering, you are healed of the eternal consequences of your sins. In other words, murderers will be in heaven with the people that they murdered and they will be in beautiful relationship with each other. And if you will trust in God, if you will put your faith in him, he will forgive you, and then also he will heal you of the eternal consequences for your sins. He just says, follow me. That's what he invites you to do. That's his ask. I want to put the full court press on you today. Don't go to hell. Set your eternal destination to heaven. Follow Jesus. Christ's sacrifice doesn't help you unless you let it, unless you say yes. He offered you a gift, but you have to receive that gift. His healing is available to you. Will you receive it? And how do we receive it? We trust. I don't understand. It all sounds a little nutty to me, but I'll trust. He says, follow me. And that's his invitation to you. God, I thank you that you have made a way for us to be adopted into your family. I pray if there's anybody here today who needs the courage to say yes, that you will give them that courage, that your Holy Spirit will be more evident today to them right now more than it ever has before. Show them your love and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.